0: welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I have an amazing discussion with a physician about his or her specialty. This week, we have a little bit of a different twist. We have Dr. Nicholas Volpe, the chair of ophthalmology at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. We largely have a discussion around what you should be thinking about if you are interested in ophthalmology. So not necessarily a discussion about the ophthalmology career, but what you should be doing if you are interested in becoming an ophthalmologist. This is a new twist that I've wanted to take specialty stories in not only having discussions with ophthalmologists, in this case, about his or her career, but also talking to chairs and program directors about what's necessary to actually match into those specialties and how to become successful in that specialty. And that's largely the direction that we take today with Dr. Volpe. Let's go ahead and jump in. We start the discussion with how Dr. Volpe initially became interested in ophthalmology.
1: I think as I progressed through my specialty rotations in my you know, second and third year of medical school, I realized that I had a fascination with vision science. I realized I was attracted to a specialty where I got to do procedures on one hand. On the other hand, recognized that just being a surgeon that intervenes and then disappears wasn't quite as satisfying as the kind of relationships that ophthalmologists can develop with their patients. So it's really, it turned out to be a very unique blend of primary care. You have chronic patients that have everyday needs and then superimpose on that the chance to intervene and solve problems surgically. Now, I think I also, you know, putting my cards on the table wasn't good at death and dying and found that that part of doctoring didn't appeal to me as much as some of the things that you could do in ophthalmology, which are almost as high stakes. I think if people think about what the things they hold most dear to themselves besides their life, sight probably right up there and the chance to help people see better, and uh, use their eyes in a more normal way was very appealing to me.
0: What traits do you think lead to someone being a good neuro-ophthalmologist?
1: Uh, so that, you know, neuro-ophthalmology is a very somewhat eccentric subspecialty within ophthalmology. It's not, there are not that many neuro-ophthalmologists. It's probably one of the less popular subspecialties. So I think in terms of first choosing ophthalmology, I think you have to have I guess if you think about the things that led me to pick it, you have to have a certain interest and a certain dexterity and a certain desire to do microsurgical procedures, which in most ophthalmologists' cases, probably 20% of their life. It's not you know, many other surgical specialties. You're operating three days a week and seeing patients one day a week kind of thing. In ophthalmology, there's still a fair amount of outpatient work in addition to the surgery. I think you have to have a, a true interest in vision and helping people see and envision science. I think it's a lot more fun to be fascinated by the eye and how it works and understand the kinds of things that we can now do for people's vision, the kind of things we can see, the kind of things we can diagnose, and then uh, being able to find that in itself as interesting as understanding how the heart works or the liver works or anything else like that. So I think an interest in the eye and vision, a desire to do. Microsurgical procedures and then you know, a willingness to let go of death and dying. I put that out there again. And uh, finally, I think it's a, you do have to have this sort of love for the primary care aspects of medicine and the willingness to see somebody a couple of times a year that's just at risk for something or has a family history of something. And you're doing the best to prevent them from getting that disease or recognizing that disease early. There are other pieces of ophthalmology that if you're, if you're so inclined, it's a great field uh, besides vision science and vision discovery. And that would be public health issues, care delivery issues. You know, the burden of blindness in the world is very different than the burden of blindness in developing countries. So there are great opportunities to provide insight and actual care on an international stage for people that are underserved. Mm. There really is a great spectrum of the kinds of things one can do during and after an ophthalmology residency, uh, you know, all these more loftier things. And on the flip side, um, you know, there's, there's a wonderful, wonderful specialty out there where you just take care of people uh, who have vision problems that are, are really elegant to correct, like for, uh, for instance, cataract surgery or refractive surgery, uh, and take the body's most elegant organ and do elegant things to it to make it work even better.
0: As a neuro-ophthalmologist, what, what sorts of disease processes and pathologies are you seeing day in and day out?
1: So there's a, that's a good segue into uh, why I chose it and what I do. So if, um, if the death and dying part that isn't part of everyday ophthalmology was something I didn't shoot for, what I did recognize was that it was the most complicated aspects of ophthalmology and the interaction between the vision system and the brain that fascinated me the most. So right now, I would say the things that I am most interested in are diseases of the optic nerve, right? The optic nerve is a card-carrying member of the brain. It connects in every way. It is it is a piece of the brain we're looking at. There are neurons that are make up the optic nerve, and there are lots of interesting and not well-understood or well-treated conditions that affect the optic nerve. And then the, the second group of patients that I see the most of are actually patients that have acquired eye movement problems and misalignment of their eyes which results in double vision and my surgical expertise is is right now limited to realigning or straightening eyes in patients that have acquired misalignment of their eyes as adults so they're seeing double and we have to move the eye muscles on the eye to create a different alignment that allows them to see single and their eyes to work together.
0: How many of the patients that you're seeing are Coming to you, diagnosis in hand, and and are just looking for definitive treatment versus you're actually doing a full workup and using your brain to figure out what's going on.
1: It's probably a third, a third, and a third. You know, a third are truly uh, the most difficult uh, cases and unexplained vision loss because we nobody can figure out why it is the patient can't see, developed a visual field defect. You have to put together historical clues, exam findings, and then diagnostic imaging. arrive at a diagnosis. At the other end of the spectrum are patients that are packaged. They have a sixth nerve palsy from a tumor that was resected, and now can you, Dr. Boulby, fix their double vision? And then in the middle, there are the nuances of people who thought they knew what they had or doctors who thought they knew what they had that had it wrong, things that were overcalled and get better on their own. There's a good mix of diagnostic dilemmas within neurophthalmology that make it a particularly challenging field. I think that's probably true of ophthalmology in general as well, as much as, you know, what's also very attractive in ophthalmology is that we can literally look at and take a picture out of, of almost all our diseases, certainly the ones that affect the cornea or the lens or the retina. Those are all things that we can visualize and take pictures of and see what they're, what's actually happening. But even then, As much as you think you are looking at straightforward macular degeneration or retinal vein occlusion or diabetic retinopathy, there are lots of nuances to making the observations to see which patient is actually not a straightforward patient or a different example or requires a different treatment. Uh, So there is a fair amount of pattern recognition that goes into ophthalmology. A lot of buzz about, for instance, artificial intelligence being able to interpret photographs and what's presented, but there's always going to be room for you know, a skilled, experienced physician being able to interpret data mm-hmm. and react to it and provide well-proven, clinically trialed treatments that really work quite well for some of the conditions that we had absolutely no treatments for as recently as 10 or 15 years ago.
0: Now, being in an academic center, what brought you there and what keeps you there year in and year out versus going out to the community?
1: So uh, for one part of it, it's pretty straightforward. You know, the, the complexity of neurophthalmology is often best served and best done in an academic medical center. But I think independent of that, my own preference would have always been to practice in the enriched and more complicated environment that is what we call an academic medical center, mostly because we have learners, we have research we have new knowledge that we're trying to apply. Uh, we have the most complicated patients where sort of where things end up. I I personally would have been less attracted to an environment where, you know, I'm on the front line and I'm just kind of doing the things and once it gets complicated, I'm ready to pass it on because I don't have the time, the interest or the experience to manage the more difficult patients. But it's real to me, the it's a straightforward decision. I realize that your listeners are all going to be very different in terms mm. of what turns them on and what turns them off. But if I think of any given day I have as an educator, clinical researcher, clinician, surgeon, there's such a wide variety of things that I do that make it always very interesting. There's there's just a smorgasbord of challenges, of new things, things I haven't seen before, things that I haven't done before, things I haven't tried to teach before that still present 25 years later as part of the day that I have as an academic physician.
0: Now, your role, I think, is new for somebody here on the podcast. You are the chair of ophthalmology. Describe what the chair of a department is and what you do on a typical day.
1: Oh, gosh, that's uh, <laughs> that adult thing, a podcast in itself. <laughs> so, <laughs> as the chairman of an academic department of ophthalmology, you are responsible for the students, the residents, the fellows, the faculty. All that they do as clinician educators and as researchers, how your service interacts with the medical center, the community, the university. There's a fair amount of um, fiscal responsibility. We have to run a, you know, a, a department that at least breaks even and, and is able to pay its salaries and take care of its patients at the same time. Uh, you have, uh, you know, I consider one of the more important things that I do is to facilitate the work of. Lots of great doctors, scientists, residents, students that are interested in the field. it's really an incredible privilege to be able to be in a role where uh, you are able to have a vision to take all these wonderful people, put them in that vision and create something that is far better than any of us could be alone, but it represents a academic department of ophthalmology and theres there are lots of regulatory things that we're responsible for and things that we have to do as part of our stewardship of uh, the academic unit that is the ophthalmology department but interestingly i would say that of, of all the specialties if you think about it besides perhaps dermatology because they don't even need operating rooms you know most of ophthalmology happens at a very high level even away from the academic or the ivory tower because you know if you wanted to be a heart surgeon or a critical care doctor who's working at the absolute cutting edge then You might be more dependent upon an academic center and and what's to be offered in an academic center. There are, you know, the the same kinds of uh, high level, state of the art procedures that we do in operating rooms here at Northwestern Medicine and uh, all our hospitals. They can be done in surgery centers and in for ophthalmologists by ophthalmologists that are in more private practice setting and are not intimately dependent on the intensity and the co-consultants that exist at an academic medical center that being said you know the 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 hardest and most difficult care tends to always end up in a destination like that mostly because we have the resources and all the experts together to take care of the most complicated patients
0: do you go through medical school and residency training and fellowship training with your eye on the prize of becoming a chairman or is that something that just manifests over time
1: Definitely not uh, as an eye on the prize kind of, uh, (laughs) you know, I I think it becomes uh, both a personal and a process self-sorting kind of thing. You know, you have to recognize that we're all good at different things and we all want to contribute in different ways. And if you look at the profile of the chairman of an academic department, uh, you're going to find out a wide variety of different expertise or different level of experiences that brought them there. Some of them will be, you know, uh, extensively funded R O one type translational scientists who do very little patient care. Some of them will be master clinician educators, which is where I would put my area of background, who, who's done a lot of clinical research and wrote a textbook and done the things to distinguish himself. But ultimately, I think the. You know, it all kind of plays out. Some of it by chance, some of it by what interests you, some of it about what your skill set is, and then you decide. Well, I'll give it a look, and, and people decide that you have the the skill set, and they give you a try. And I've been in the position for more than eight years, and uh, so far, I've continued to enjoy it and uh, enjoy the challenges, which it adds to my life on top of taking care of patients and teaching and doing surgery and the other things that are would be part of my life, whether I was chairperson or not.
0: Now, ophthalmology historically has been one of the, the more competitive residencies to match into. As the chairman and being intimately involved with the residency program, what makes a student stand out to hopefully get a, a residency spot in ophthalmology?
1: You know, I think the, in all the things that make medical students stand out in general, you know, how how you distinguish yourself from the pack are obviously more Relevant when you're trying to get one of the more competitive residencies and the harder to get into specialties. And the I'm going to try to avoid starting with the first one, which is the board score, because (laughs) I think unfortunately has way too much emphasis on it. Yeah, I I think you should think of yourself as how, how do I create a convincing picture that I am and in some ways an outlier and different than the middle of the pack, and that might start by, you know, doing some research or becoming affiliated with the ophthalmology department at your school earlier on. It doesn't mean you have to write a paper in your second year. It might mean that you're just involved in the ophthalmology interest group and the people in the department get to know you. Many medical schools now have, you know, areas of scholarly concentration, we call it here at Northwestern, where you get involved in a research project and you do something, again, not so much to prove that you can do it, but just to demonstrate that you have the capacity to multitask, that you're really interested in this, you want to learn more about the field, and you've immersed yourself in, in a project that's relevant. I think uh, the ability to get honors in your clinical, some of your clinical rotations, helps to distinguish yourself. To me, one of the most important things are superlative letters from people that I know who identify a student as somebody who stands out or is one of the best students they've worked with in a long time or other. Uh, such uh, high level praise. Uh, and then, you know, the facts are that the board score is important. Where I don't think listeners should think they're less smart or less of a doctor if they have a, a lower board score, but there is a necessity, unfortunately, to create some type of a sorting process in everything in life. And there are programs that have board cutoffs or thresholds because they're able to only interview people at a certain level. Uh, there are programs that, you know, it's, it's one in, in our program, it's, it's an important consideration, but we interview many people that, you know, have average board scores, and don't stand out just based on their board scores, but stand out for certain other reasons. So I don't, I think people have to not think of it as a, well, I didn't get a 250 on the board, so I can't go into ophthalmology, I think they have to recognize that not getting that kind of a high score might keep them out of the most competitive programs. But if they continue to demonstrate that they're great doctors and interested people have high emotional intelligence are doing it for the right reasons, then, then they'll get good letter writers or get noticed by the program that knows them and then make their way into ophthalmology. We just, um, we just had our match last week for the class that'll begin the ophthalmology portion of their training in July of 2020, so 18 months from now. And uh, I think the statistics, statistic was that about 87% of first-time U.S. senior allopathic applicants matched. Yeah. So the, the odds are still in your favor, but there are obvious people that we recognize right from the start are going to be long shots because they have low board scores and they haven't done any honors, and they're coming to the field a little bit late, and the letter writers don't seem like the right people. And in those cases, we, we are honest about encouraging a backup plan, and or deciding whether they should take a year out and try to create a different kind of application.
0: How important is it for the student to do a an elective at the program they want to match into?
1: That's a great question. And um, I will tell you that the official policy of the leaders of academic institutions in ophthalmology is to, is to not widely encourage audition electives. I think it's different in other specialty where it's sort of a given that if you want to come here, you better come and show us your stuff. It's not necessary. I think the, depending on the student, and they should know this from life and from their mentors. Certainly, if you're going to be a negative outlier in terms of how you present yourself and you're not as open and forward and you don't quite get the nuances of interpersonal stuff in a clinical <laughs> setting quite yet, then it's the kiss of death, of course. Yep. Uh, I think there are, you know, above average applicants that come. Do these senior electives. In our case, you know, they make it very clear they have a connection to Chicagoland. They do super jobs and they are people that would never, would not have been on our radar screen otherwise and end up getting ranked in good places because we, you know, in the end, we are dealing with lots of very qualified people. We have this crazy thing called a match, which is like a sorting hat, which takes, you know, the, if there are 500 applicants in the average year, there are probably fifty that have that stand out because everything about them is ridiculously good, and there's probably seventy five or hundred if we include international graduates that, you know, that it's a long shot right from the start for various reasons. And then you've got three or four hundred right in the middle there that are really hard to distinguish, you know. And and maybe it's great because you went to a top twenty five med school or you do have a paper in an ophthalmology journal. But in the end, we're all looking to match people that we think we can train that we'd enjoy training so that you do potentially give yourself a leg up if you are particularly interested in that program and you're convinced you know that you can be a great resident based on your behavior and your performance and you make the deal i think you know if i think back on it oh i have 25 years between being the residency director at penn and now the chairman here at northwestern i would say that More than half of the people that I end up matching in the programs that I led, I knew somehow beforehand, either because they were students at my school or because they we had met them while they did these sort of senior electives, if you will. So there's you know there is an advantage in that sense. On the flip side, if someone comes for an interview and they've done electives at three other Chicago programs and not mine, well you know there then it's been very it's obvious that we might be their fourth choice and therefore we're a little bit less interested that they didn't want to do it there. So it can be a double-edged sword in that sense. There's a couple of interesting papers that have shown that for borderline applicants, there's an advantage to doing local electives. Well, you know, so if you were a borderline student because of board scores or came to it late or whatever it was, and you were in Chicago, then you might, there might be an advantage to doing electives at the other Chicago programs. So they get to know you and, and realize that just because you're here in Chicago, that's already a reason that they might want to pick you for residency because you're likely to come there because you know Chicago and you like Chicago. Mm. But there, there's not a lot of facts. And I think it's very important that probably the most important thing I could advise students to do is to make sure they take advantage of the the medical student director, the residency director, the chairperson in their department and, and really talk to them and strategize for them. It doesn't turn out to be that complicated a decision they're that that ma- meant they're not that many months. There are, I, you know, I tell people, if you know you want to be in Boston, your boyfriend or your husband or your girlfriend or your fiance or somebody's there. And, you know, then if someone can pick up the phone and get you an elective with somebody they know and, and start the ball rolling, that this is a serious look, not just, you're not doing it to learn more ophthalmology. You're doing it to show that program, what you have to offer. Then I think there can be a, a very, indeed a, a facilitating the process, but it's not where, okay, you've got six months to pick the six places where you're going to go do an elective. And that's one of the places you're going to do your residency. Is I it, don't think that's the case.
0: It's, it's interesting. So you would recommend potentially for a student to make it known, like, I don't want to come here just to get more practice. I want to come here because I really think this is where I want to be.
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't, know, you know, we all kind of dance around the obvious be people but nobody is doing a month of ophthalmology as a senior medical student in September or October (laughs) because they want to learn more ophthalmology to make them a better ophthalmologist that's nobody believes that and again it's you can impress people you know in the second month if you wow you know you saw something you'd seen before and you know you I can't believe this medical student knew what Fuchs uh, heterochromic cyclitis was (laughs) then you know you could you might get lucky in that setting but it's it's really you know we're just we want to meet people that we will enjoy training that get along with people that the residents like that come to our program and say wow this is an incredible place you know and get even more impressed by it right the the best match is when the program really wants you and you really want the program yeah then everybody lives happily ever after
0: what's the biggest mistake you see med students making
1: as part of the application process as
0: part of the application process or during their elective rotations with you guys
1: Uh, mostly to undersell themselves or not have the confidence that they should have based on what they've achieved or not pick ophthalmology because they're convinced they'll never get into it. Or, you know, just something that is, uh, you know, to use a lot of misinformation that's out there, whether it's on the internet or on some website or from a buddy or from the schools
0: or in a podcast,
1: right? Well, I hope not. (laughs) You are getting the information from the source right now. Exactly, yeah. But to to take some information and process it in a a way that is not correct and not take advantage of experts in the field who are are there to help you and to help you to be successful as an applicant to our specialty. We we love what we do, and the more people we can interest in the field, uh, the better it is.
0: Let's talk about a student listening to this who is at an osteopathic medical school. What are your views on osteopathic applications coming into your program?
1: um I, you know I think traditionally because it's been competitive and there' are more than enough allopathic applicants um they're they don't stand out as easily. That's not to say that we wouldn't interview somebody or consider them seriously if they stood out for other reasons, it just becomes harder to judge them against the other applicants so it would have to be somebody we know uh, or somebody who came to our attention because of somebody uh, through the process that really helped bring attention to this application there are some osteopathic ophthalmology residencies and they have a separate path to be successful ophthalmologists so it's by no means something that kills the deal but it is certainly a harder position to start from uh, in my experience
0: what makes uh a resident stand out to you guys, a student who's going or not a student anymore, a physician who's going through their residency, what makes them stand out?
1: Oh, I think that it's, it's one of those things you just know, you know, just like uh, Mm -hmm. when you're judging someone as a surgeon, as somebody who takes care of patients, there are people that have a level of maturity about their learning and their patient care that, are, it's very obvious right from the start that this person is going to be a great physician and you know there there may be 10 percent that are positive outliers as incredible surgeons the rest in in the middle that are perfectly capable of learning how to be great surgeons but it's more a level of seriousness attention to detail teamwork interest beyond just getting through you know and really learning material doing extra stuff that Nobody anticipates, and you and you just say, "Wow, that's that's really nice work." I didn't even ask you to do that. Thank you. Uh, So I I think people that have been able to distinguish themselves and haven't hit the wall in terms of their ability to try to continue to distinguish themselves will do so. And and you notice I haven't said, "Oh, they just know so much," or "Their fundamental knowledge is so great," or "They do so well on their in-service exam." That has so little to do with it in the end, in terms of who's a good doctor and who's becoming a good doctor. That it's much more how they deliver care, how they take their responsibilities, how they interact with patients. It's just a beautiful thing to watch a young physician who has the emotional intelligence to be have enough empathy to deal with a difficult patient or a sad patient or to go that extra mile to know that they have what it takes to be a great doctor, whether it's an ophthalmologist or a surgeon or anything else.
0: Now, for a surgical program, there's always the the folklore out there and possibly the, the true history of during residency interviews of needing to sew cheese together and and other fun projects to make sure that somebody has the dexterity to be a, a good surgeon, especially with microsurgery with the eye for a student who's out there, who has the intelligence, has the board scores, has everything and in interest to want to be an ophthalmologist, but is doubting their dexterity to be one what do you say to him or her to let them know that maybe you don't need it right now and we'll teach you that
1: you know i think that what you just said at the end there is probably the truth um there are there are probably no effective ways to screen for it in fact uh, i don't know this to be true now but i'm pretty sure it's illegal to screen for it yeah no i think it is when you are having offered somebody a job based on the ADA laws. Mm -hmm. In the end, what I tell applicants, you know, and and when I speak with them is that, you know, there's of all the things that you worry about in life right now, I'm sure you're not worried about whether you can be nice to patients, whether you'll learn what you need to learn to be a good ophthalmologist, uh, whether you'll understand how the retina works, whatever. The last piece of your life is wondering whether you'll be a good eye surgeon. And I would submit that, you know, 95% or more or higher, uh, will get there, uh, regardless of what they came with. And that the other 5%, the reason that they don't end up being good at it has really nothing to do with, do I have the dexterity? It has more to do with, you know, something about the operating room that makes them nervous or they can't concentrate, or there's something that when they finally get to that point, you just don't process it. Well, for ophthalmology, Even though we have to train you to be a surgeon, there are lots of good non-surgical practices that you can be in in ophthalmology that only use laser or don't do incisional surgery. But there are simulation. Most there's an ophthalmic simulator that people can use that most programs have that kind of give you an idea of what the kind of tests are that you have to do. I think most people know whether they're good with their. If you're good with your hands, then you're probably going to be a good surgeon in general. People know if they have tremors or intention tremors that should avoid it. You will be at an incredible disadvantage as an eye surgeon if you don't have normal stereopsis Mm -hmm. and normal depth perception. So if you have any significant history of strabismus or your eyes not working together, well, there's most likely a pathway for you. It's just going to be a lot harder for you than if you had normal stereopsis because you're separating your eyes to look through a microscope uh, and not being able to use monocular clues for depth. So I think it's reasonable if you don't have normal depth perception or, or you're concerned that you may not to have it tested and then have a conversation with somebody about whether you want to choose this path as opposed to choosing a you know a field that has procedures that only need one eye like with an endoscope or something like that. But I I don't I think there's most people who get to this point they kind of know where they are on the spectrum and the interest of things to be able to do surgery and We've studied this as academic ophthalmologists for decades now. And there are, there's just a handful of people that end up not doing surgery because they can't. There are many who choose not to because they just doesn't do it for them or they are going in a different direction. But there are very few that who can't do it. And all the people that struggle in the beginning, going back to your opening comment, we'll teach you, we'll get you there and we'll make you into a good surgeon.
0: Having been in the field for, for a while now, what's the, the biggest change or shift that you've seen in the clinical care of patients in ophthalmology?
1: Oh, they're, 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 you know ophthalmology is the home for some of the most incredibly revolutionized treatments of conditions that didn't exist, treatments that didn't exist for c- conditions that are our most common cause of blindness. so the, the most obvious one is the, act, the success we're now having in treating macular degeneration. With molecules that block VEGF, so to stop the blo- growth, of, growth of new blood vessels, and literally prevent people from losing their central vision from macular degeneration. On the flip side, we have had incredible advances in the technology that we use to diagnose retinal problems. We have a device called an optical coherence tomographer, which takes just about cellular level three micron resolution pictures in vivo of the thickness of the retina, so you can see cell-by-cell cell, fluid, anything that's changing it. Wow. You know, we have some other interesting not logistical challenges. Right? We're, we're making about 10,000 new 65-year-olds a day for the next 25 years or so, mm-hmm. and how we're going to care for those patients and their eye diseases, since that's our group of patients, the, you know, the Medicare population, if you will, that get our diseases. That's, that's an enormous change and challenge that we all think about. Um, you know, ophthalmology is the first to successfully treat people with genes, right? We have gene therapy now that corrects a hereditary form of blindness called Leber's congenital amaurosis. And, and the eye is the perfect place for gene therapy, for stem cells, for things that once we prove how to get them there and how to get them to hook up, I think you're going to see some incredibly interesting advances in that field. But on the flip side, we have diabetics, that are five miles from my office here that are going blind from a completely treatable condition that was undiagnosed because they don't get to an eye doctor and their disparity issues and and how we provide care to those people and get them to the right ophthalmologist is an equally important challenge that we all have to embrace as our field evolves. should
0: there be any concerns for a student interested in ophthalmology? should there be any concern with changes coming to the field with the way that It's practiced or with potentially with uh, optometrists coming in and wanting to do more surgical intervention. Should the ophthalmology be concerned about anything in the future?
1: Absolutely not. There's just an, first of all, as I said, there's an incredible volume of patients that need our care, at least for the next 20 years. I'm not sure what's going to happen after that when the boom ends, Mm -hmm. but there's going to be just a huge need for cataract surgery, the treatment of macular degeneration. The ophthalmologists for the next 20 years, when these students listening will be finishing, are going to be very busy, uh, at least for the first half of their career, in terms of the number of patients that they have to care for. At the same time, they're going to have to be comfortable working closely with non-physicians in the care of patients. And, you know, I think there's great opportunities for synergy with optometry in terms of uh, optometrists being excellent at taking care of the eye, recognizing eye diseases, Treating refractive diseases, co-managing post-operative surgical patients, there isn't. uh, There are, you know, there are pockets and places in the world where someone's going to have to decide if you don't have to go to medical school and do a four-year residency to learn how to do a cataract operation. I mean, anybody can be taught to do anything with the right teacher in the right circumstances. Whether they should be doing that or not, that's not really the point. The point is that we have to figure out a way to care for the population and. Just based on the number of changes the number of treatments that are now available that weren't available ten years ago, I can only imagine the incredible explosion of things that we're going to be doing to treat people with blinding eye diseases that are going to require uh, that ophthalmologists be available to innovate uh, research teach and then deliver these care these novel cares to patients so the future is I think very bright for ophthalmology on a treatment standpoint you know it's a it's always hard to know how it's going to fit into the world and, and who pays for what and how much it costs to do this. And you know, one of the the things about ophthalmology that you have to be prepared for is that we do see a high volume of patients. There's a fair amount of, of throughput in the average ophthalmologist day just because there are patients that need the care. And you know how we're going to deal with that when there's more patients and how the world is going to pay for that or pay ophthalmologists is an interesting challenge. But This is just an incredible privilege to be in this field. And I don't see that that's going to, nobody can change that. No one's going to change the fact that you walk into a room, you close the door and you say, hey, Mrs. Smith, what can I do for you? And I'm having this problem or that problem. And you use your expertise to decide what they have, how to treat them and apply that expertise.
0: With everything that you've learned now as an ophthalmologist, as a neuro-ophthalmologist, as the chairman, what would you go back and tell your younger self starting in medical school or residency?
1: Um, that's a great question. So, um, I think I would mostly reassure myself that this is all going to, you know, it's all going to work out and you're going to be exactly where you hoped you wanted to be and dreamed you wanted to be as a physician. You know, it, it's, it's always hard. You know, whenever you start out, you always have a lot of self doubt. And am I going to be a good surgeon? Am I going to be able to uh, establish myself? Am I going to be able to have, uh, you know, a unique expertise? Am I going to be able to help patients? and you know, some some people come to to the profession of medicine with more confidence. I think most people should have more confidence that they do. And uh, I would, you know, remind myself that, uh, or encourage myself and say, you know, this is all going to work out, and you're going to turn out to have uh, a unique expertise and really be able to ha- help patients. And oh, by the way, you know, if if things break your way and you and you establish yourself as a uh, uniquely expert and a good administrator. Uh, There's a chance that you'll have an opportunity to lead on a bigger scale, which I, again, I hadn't anticipated. Even though I was in a high profile residency uh, that was very academic, you just never know how that's going to turn out. And um, mostly I would tell myself to, you know, make sure you take a breath and smell the roses and uh, that you'll have a great family and a great marriage and a great life. And that's certainly the most rewarding parts of my life.
0: What do you like the most about being an ophthalmologist?
1: Uh, just the the unique ability to recognize life-altering conditions to be able to then alter those conditions in a way that improves people in a way that uh, they define as completely changing the way they approach their world and their future. You know, it's just incredible what we can do for people and and how we all at our you know from from basically age. 25 to age 65 you ignore your eyes and you get a little bit frustrated because you need reading glasses but you take them for granted and you know time and time again when you encounter people that suddenly have a problem with their vision to be able to to identify that problem to fix that problem to understand that problem to research that problem it's just an incredible privilege and uh, it happens right where the where the patient kind of knows it's happening you know if you if you have a problem with your heart you know, you you can show the patient the EKG and the echo, and you can say, "Well, you see, this valve is doing this." And this. people know when they can see and when they can't see, when they see double, and when they see single, and uh, the intensity of that interaction makes it a very rewarding field.
0: What do you like the least?
1: Uh, I'd say the you know again, I I'll come back to the the part of it that represents uh, you know the volume of patients and the things that we have to do mostly. Because of the patients that need to see us and our ability to have to, our necessity to have to see large amounts of patients in a shorter period of time than you might like to do to be able to spend pay, pay time with patients. It's probably similar to what a primary care doctor or family doctor would complain about in terms of the volume of patients they have to see and not being able to spend the time helping people to understand their problems. I don't think that's unique to ophthalmology. I think it's true of every practitioner that's on the front lines, and it's probably. Less true of a heart surgeon who knows she, that she can do three heart operations on Tuesdays and threes on Thursdays. and Along the way, she sees enough patients to generate that volume, and it's never a, a feeling like, "Oh my God, I got to be here at eight o'clock seeing ten more patients because they need to see me." So, but I, I, I think that's a that's just part of it, and that's just the nature of of all doctoring. I think is the unpredictable nature of our schedules and, and being able to get through it, but. I think if you look at most of the, the if, if you could call it this, the burnout literature or the whatever literature that that says physicians are having a hard time these days, I, I don't. Most of those don't apply to ophthalmologists, and most ophthalmologists uh, enjoy what they do and uh, enjoy doing as much of it as they can. On one hand, and on the other hand, are able to you know confine their work to daylight hours and not as much on the weekends and the other things that that. Can, Certainly interfere with other physicians' lives.
0: Any last words of wisdom for the medical student listening to this or the pre-med student listening to this thinking they, they're interested in ophthalmology?
1: Just the, this is an incredible specialty that you can get into it um, you know to prepare you know prepare yourself early, think if it's on your list of things you might be interested in, you know seek out the the student group in your medical school. Seek out mentors. Try to just nudge your way in to get to know people. They'll start to see what you're doing. Uh, know that there's in both a, in, in, this is an incredible time to be an ophthalmologist, both because of the clinical need for eye care, whether it's in Chicago, the country, or the world. And at the same time, we're at just this most exciting uh, precipice of, of game-changing treatments based on clinical and translational research that are really impacting people's lives in a way that uh, we would never have imagined uh, just as, as recently as 10 or 20 years ago. So this is a great time to be thinking about ophthalmology. You can do it. And um, we would love to see you here at Northwestern someday.
0: All right. So there you have it. Hopefully that was an interesting discussion for you all about what it's going to take to become an ophthalmologist, how you match into it in the first place. What are they looking for? What? How do you stand out as an applicant. A great discussion that I hope was helpful for you. Next week, we have a great discussion with Dr. Brittany Henderson, an endocrinologist who specializes in the thyroid. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.